Season 6 of the CMO Suite is presented by Bid for Media. Bid for Media is the leader in providing biddable media solutions across all forms of media, including traditional, digital, social, experiential, and more. It's like eBay for media. Choices from radio and TV advertising to OTT, trade desk, display advertising, influencer marketing, and more. No sign-up fees, no boring training, no bullshit. Visit them at bidformedia.com. Season 6 of the CMO Suite is also sponsored in part by Uconnects. Uconnects provides managed services in the programmatic space for brands and agencies across the U.S. and internationally. It uniquely provides true transparency in the programmatic space by sharing how much of each campaign actually goes to publishers, platform, and how much is profit. If you are looking to better understand true working dollars or are just looking for an audit of your existing digital partnerships, visit them at uconnects.com. That's Y-O-U-C-O-N-N-E-X.com. And Winmo. Winmo is one of the leading sales prospecting tools that delivers the information you need to identify opportunities and close more deals with advertisers and agencies. Search brands, agencies, or contacts and leverage Winmo's smart filters to pare down thousands of prospects based on annual revenue, job title, locations, mobile occurrence, planning periods, and more. Visit them today at winmo.com. And finally, No Kid Hungry. With season six, we'll be completing our 100th episode of the CMO Suite, and we're proud to announce we'll be compiling highlights of our previous guests for a book called CMO Suites, Recipes for Success, with proceeds to benefit the No Kid Hungry organization. Help feed hungry kids by donating today at nokidhungry.org. And don't forget to visit Marketing Cast to catch any previous seasons you might have missed of the CMO Suite or to check out other amazing podcasts in the industry. Once again, that's marketingcasts.com. Now, let's start the show. You're in the CMO Suite, the podcast for marketers who want to be in the know, presented by Connectivity Holdings. You are listening to the CMO Suite. This is your host, Sean Halter. As a reminder, the CMO Suite is brought to you in part by Bid for Media. Bid for Media provides biddable media solutions for brands across the U.S. I'm going to screw this up, Mike. I just know it. It's Mike Madaras, VP of Marketing and Growth at Digiday Media. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'm assuming, uh, just based a little bit on the accent, a little bit of the research that I've done, you're in New York City. I am, yeah. That is not like a Alabama accent. Not uh, there's no Dallas uh, in there at all. Did you did you grow up in uh, in the city? Uh, not too far from it. And that was that was quick, by the way. You picked up on that accent pretty quick. Yeah, actually, I grew up in uh, Long Island, so not too far from from New York City. Isn't it kind of funny in some ways? Again, there's a, there is a regional aspect to this country. There's a dialect in some ways. You know, when people come here from overseas or wherever, they may feel like everybody kind of is the same. But there are little individual dialects. There's an actor that used to be on Saturday Night Live who I think literally can do every little accent for New York. You can kind of throw out a neighborhood, and he's got like a little uh, uh, a little different uh, twang to that dialect to some extent. So you grew up in Long Island, and how was that? What did your What did your mom and dad do as you were growing up, if you don't mind me asking. So my dad was actually, and still is a, an accountant. I remember growing up, he always kind of jokingly tried to push me into uh, accounting. He always told, he always told me that I was always going to have a job if I was an accountant. I think, which I think was probably true. So I actually think I'm, uh, I'm definitely more of like a left brain type person. So accounting may have been a good profession for me, but I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just so dry. And it's kind of like the same thing day after day. So I knew like accounting was never really for me. And my mom was actually the one that was in marketing. And I kind of like always knew from an early age that marketing was definitely more of like a, more of like a compelling, intriguing career for me. So I don't know. I always like talk about the left brain, right brain thing with marketing. I think I definitely probably get the left brain part from my dad and probably the right brain part from my mom. I remember telling my kids, either become an accountant or a coder. You will always have a career path of some sort. But 
again, like anything else, the kids never listen to some extent. But listen, you found something fun and you managed to kind of think at, a, at an early age about the industry. As you mentioned, your mom was kind of in the industry to some extent. Have any brothers and sisters? Do they kind of all still live uh, there in New York or uh, talk about that for just a second? I do. I'm the, uh, the oldest of four, actually. And my three siblings all live in the city. So that's kind of cool. Get to see a lot of them. And my youngest brother is actually, he's in the industry. He, uh, he's an ad buyer. So Great. Well, listen, it sounds like none of them became the accountant. Your poor dad, for crying out loud. Yeah, he went 0 for 4 in accountants. But... 0 for 4. Yeah. Um, so talk about your, your path. You grew up there, uh, as you mentioned, in Long Island. Then you stayed and went to school in New York uh, as well, I'm assuming? I went to uh, SUNY Geneseo. So if you're not from New York, you're probably not all that familiar with the SUNY system, but uh, Geneseo is way upstate, western New York, about an hour south of Rochester. So I went there for undergraduate, studied marketing a little bit, and then I did my MBA at Binghamton, so also upstate New York. I always tell people that I'm just New York through and through between Long Island and upstate New York, and now been in New York City for a uh, for uh, about eight or nine years. So my son is planning on going to uh, school in Poughkeepsie to the Culinary Institute of America. So we'll see how long after he gets there that he starts saying that he's from New York. We'll 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 see what happens along the way. Poughkeepsie is like a nice little pocket of upstate New York. I played I played soccer in college, so I got to see like all the different. I got to see everywhere upstate New York, and I can tell you from from uh, a number of bus rides that Poughkeepsie is like one of the nicer uh, nicer areas. Good. Well, I know he's looking forward to it, but let's jump into marketing. So did you get your degree in marketing? Did it, did you know that early on that that was kind of the, the place that where you wanted to spend time? I, I think I did. I took in high school, I took all the, the marketing classes that they offered. I was always kind of interested in it. And I think just going back to that sort of left brain, right brain thing that I mentioned before, I think that was the thing that always kind of piqued my interest, just this sort of intersection of like creativity and strategy and you know trying to balance the two, which I think is probably, you know, even just as much, if not more true when you look at media in terms of, you know, trying to balance those two things, obviously creating really great content is sort of like the most important thing, but you know, then you flip over to the business side and monetizing that can also take a lot of different forms and requires a lot of strategy too. So I think that's, what's kind of cool about my job is, um, you know, Digiday is very meta in the sense that we cover the media industry as this sort of modern media company. And then you look at my role specifically, I'm on the marketing side for this media company that's covering the media and marketing industry. It's all kind of, it's a little too meta for me sometimes, but... Uh, it does sound like you're going down the rabbit hole, you know, to, yeah, to some extent. I got my degree in marketing and media, and that's part of uh, my family uh, uh, makeup. And now I'm in the industry covering marketing and media and, uh, and, and building stories about marketing and media. I mean, it's, it is crazy to some extent. You started early, though, in social media. So it seems like you, you kind of started to forge a path. Ten years ago, you were at Dice uh, handling social media, and you were, uh, in essence, a marketing assistant there. Ten years ago doesn't sound like that long ago, but from a social media perspective, it, it, it's almost a lifetime ago. Yeah, that, that just blew my mind that that was 10 years ago. But um, yeah, when I first came out of college, social media was still kind of this like cool new thing. We actually, you had like these big teams like dedicated to social media and stuff. And I remember back then we were just tracking things like the number of like weekly followers we got on Facebook and like the number of clicks you get on a post and stuff like that. So it was definitely a much different uh, sort of ecosystem. But yeah, like I said, social media was kind of like this shiny new thing for a lot of companies at that time. And I was like, you know, as as a millennial, I was uh, more literate in it than a lot of other people. So I was interested in it at first, but I think I think I always kind of knew that it was going to uh, it was going to lose steam and it was just going to be like another 
another marketing channel sooner or later. So yeah, that was kind of my start. But like I said, back then, social media marketing was like a different thing than marketing. And now it's just, it's built into all marketing strategies and, and buys and channels and stuff like that. So it is there is a unique aspect of it to some extent though. I, I often view social media as almost kind of the nightclub system. You know, it's the new club opens up. That's whatever the new social platform is. All the younger kids end up kind of going there and hanging out while it's still cool. Then these older people start kind of heading there because it's the cool place to kind of go. And by the time, you know, your parents go there, if by the time your parents end up in, you know, Facebook, you're like, that's the, that's the last place in essence I want to be. But it is always evolving. It is always changing. And in some cases, again, if you look at Facebook as an example, then they're out there trying to buy whatever the next new trend is, whatever that new, next new place is in social media. And when you look at something like Snapchat, which has kind of found a little bit of a spot, or Twitter that seems to kind of float around out there a little bit, and then you get down to TikTok, you know, it is, it is a new shiny penny. So there is still some element of that that social media can bring uh, to the table that is a little different than, say, traditional media, you know, your typical radio station that maybe flips from country to alternative rock once every 10 years or something. So where do you feel like that kind of falls within your coverage at DigiDay? And where does where does social actually fit within what you're trying to make sure that you're doing in the role that you're sitting in at DigiDay? It's a good question. I think, you know, I think now, speaking in terms of like how we cover the industry, I think now marketers they don't really think of it as social media when they're you know, doing ad buys. We cover the way that Facebook sort of is impacting ad budgets and impacting the industry the same way that we would cover how Google is impacting the industry. And there's no real like line in the sand, like this is social, this is, this is a different type of digital ad buy. So like I said, it all just kind of goes together. And is, I mean, it's the way we cover the industry, it's pretty like channel agnostic in terms of you know, calling one thing social or, an, or another uh, digital. And then I think in terms of how we use it, our team, so it's obviously a big channel for us in terms of syndication. I think that's for a lot of publishers, especially, you know, going back like five, six years ago, there's a lot of publishers that really got hooked on Facebook and Twitter and some of these social platforms as a way to build these huge, um, maybe, maybe a little overly inflated audiences. And that's obviously, you know, cooled down a little bit. The bubbles kind of burst on that a little bit, but it's still a really good, really good channel for publishers um, in terms of syndication and driving people back to your site. And then, you know, we're a niche B2B publisher, so we're not going to be, you know, engagement hunting on a lot of these channels. I think as much as, uh, you know, the BuzzFeeds of the world or, you know, name another B2C publisher. Um, The Cheddars of the world, the Chives of the world to some extent, they seem to kind of have lived off of that Facebook um, algorithm for for some length of time before it kind of changed, which you knew was going to come at some point, right? You can't can't kind of live in that space for free. Yeah, I mean... the lesson that I've always been taught is you don't want to uh, you don't want to trust anyone else with like your distribution. That's why that's why email was always sort of the holy grail of distribution because you just own that with all the stuff that's going on with the iOS changes and I, people have just kind of generally over-indexed on email. It's losing its effectiveness a little bit, but I think the uh, the maxim kind of holds true that you know you never want to trust another another company that's uh, trying to build a business off your distribution. Well, Apple certainly proved that, you know, at the end of the game, we own the hardware. So we make the rules. And it is interesting to kind of see that foot fall on the other side with Facebook, who for many years was kind of saying, well, we own the pipes. So you do what we say. And now the shoe is on the other foot. I find it honestly, slightly ironic to see them kind of stomping their feet and saying, you know, Apple, you're hurting everybody. 
Meanwhile, come, come on, let's let's all be honest a little bit about how that algorithm had worked for for many many years. So uh, you made your way over to DigiDay. Talk about that. How did you end up uh, over there from a few of the places that you'd worked before, including Sparks? Yeah, so I kind of fell backwards into events early on in my career. When I was at Dice, I was on a team that was doing a lot of trade shows and a lot of conferences. Went to another trade show company, and I ended up at Sparks, like you said, which was an experiential agency. And the client I was working on was a DSP. It was a, a programmatic platform. And at that time, programmatic was, I don't think you would call it like an, like the new kid on the block necessarily or like this new thing, but it was still in this place that I think people like to, uh, to, under, to, like to pretend that they understood what was going on when in fact, a lot of people really didn't. So it was still in sort of like this nascent place a little bit. And I was working on this, this client that was a DSP, I had no idea what all these ad tech acronyms meant, like what the Lumiscape was, what any of this stuff was. And at that time, Digiday was really kind of the industry bible for explaining all these different things and, and what they meant and just being really honest and candid about, about what was going on in this programmatic landscape, which at that time, and I mean, obviously to this day still, was really notorious for being way too opaque and more complicated than was really necessary. So anyway, you have programmatic. It's this new thing. It's really complicated, really hard to understand. So I'm reading Digiday every morning, trying to wrap my head around all of it. And I really came to appreciate sort of the way that they covered the industry and the brand that they were building. The whole, the whole thing was built on, you know, honesty and quality coming before anything else, which in this this industry can be tricky to find. Yeah. And that was, that was our key differentiator was this whole honesty and quality thing. I mean, in terms of quality, this was, this was during a time when people were trying to just get as many people to their website as possible so they could serve as many ads to them programmatically. So you had these, you had a lot of these really, these lot of really flimsy businesses built on like, frankly, just like shitty content that was designed to attract as many uh, why by users as possible. And then, yeah, in terms of honesty, like I said, we we're in this, uh, we we're covering this, the media marketing industry and everything about programmatic is just way too opaque, is just way more complicated than it needs to be. There's way too, there's way more middlemen than there needs to be. And so, yeah, like honesty was something that really differentiated us from a lot of what was going on in that space. And that was about five or six years ago. You know, we're one of those. Uh, we own one of those middlemen uh, to some extent. We, uh, as an agency, we couldn't find anybody to really kind of tell us what was happening in the programmatic space. We had a big client, which was Deep Eddie at the time. We were spending about a half a million dollars, you know, through other DSP type channels. The you know, the iHearts of the world or whoever of the world. And we couldn't get anything other than, you know, a click-through report or something like that. We had looked at the trade desk, but it looked like a Ferrari to us at the time. Ultimately, that's where we ended up, though. We ended up, you know, hiring a team. We split out that company to, to basically provide that level of transparency that you just talked about, which was people saying, I know I need to be in this space, but can somebody just tell me what this really is? I mean, can somebody be honest with me and tell me, like, how much goes to platform, how much goes to publisher? You know, everybody needs to make a profit, but it's these... It was those Wild West days, and I, I was the same as you. I was on some of these calls sometimes, and somebody would say, well, you know, how do you blah, 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 whatever that, you know, whatever the acronym was, I was writing them down as fast as I could, and I'd be like, well, we don't, you know, we don't uh, divulge that. Meanwhile, then as soon as it's done, I'm going to DigiDay, or I'm going to some other providers out there going, what the, you know, what, what the hell is this? You know, what's behavior? What's contextual? How does that work? And so DigiDay has been, for me at least, certainly since that time that we opened that company called Uconnect, it has been a resource, to your point, of just what you said, which is, 
I kind of understand this, but can somebody talk this to me in a way that doesn't feel like I'm being spoken over to or in almost engineering language and help me to understand what's the shit, what's the good stuff, what's the stuff we want to be in, how does first party work, what's third party, how does, you know, who's a player versus who's the weather.com extended networks of the world and, and who, would I, who do I need to kind of look out for? Yeah, exactly. You nailed it. That's what we were kind of famous for. And that's how we sort of like carved out the space for ourselves in this industry really was with- Did you, did you know somebody there or how did you end up over there? I did actually. So like I said, I sort of fell backwards into events early on in my career. Digiday has a huge events business. A lot of people don't know this. Digiday was actually an event before it was even a a publication or a website. So we've always had a huge events business. Someone who I used to work with, Megan Knapp, earlier in my career, she's still our head of events to this day at Digiday. She had just moved over there. We had known each other from, like I said, a previous stop. And I had all this experience in B2B events. And like I said, I've been reading Digiday pretty religiously for a little while. Had a lot of respect for their brand. They were actually sort of restarting their marketing team at that point. So they were looking for someone to come in and help build out this events business. It was a pretty good fit at that time. So they had had a few marketing people there, like come and go the couple of years before that, but they never really had a sort of like foundation to build the marketing team on. Yeah. So I, I came in as a, a marketing manager. I guess that was a little more than six years ago yeah. and was started as a one-man marketing team. And we sort of built the group up ever since then. You know, there's something amazing about that though, meaning you're at the cusp of this industry that's not going backwards, right? You know, the veterans of the industry to some extent, the ad ages, the ad weeks, do a great job of covering the stuff that they cover, obviously a bit more broad in nature, but you guys have kind of always been this horse kind of right in this space. And to your point, it's been a chance to be able to kind of dig into, to, I don't want to say a niche because it's not even a niche anymore, but to, to kind of be that flag bearer for kind of what's happening in essence in that, in that digital space. So you came as a marketing manager and then you moved up to kind of a marketing director position. And then right around that pandemic, you end up uh, kind of taking a seat uh, as VP of marketing and growth. And so how did the pandemic impact either you or the strategy, or did it give you a chance to kind of look back at your previous four years there and kind of think of, okay, what, you know, what do we do during this time where we have a chance to kind of rethink our own selves? We've always been on the cutting edge and now, you know, how, how do we stay that way? When you started talking about how the pandemic affected us, all you really need to know is that almost half of our business was events right around the time that the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. Obviously, all these events that we had planned are now not going to happen in person. And so, I mean, so that's, and even if you walk it back a little more like conceptually, the things that our clients come to us for is we are really good at connecting people. We're really good at bringing the right people into a room and connecting them with our clients and giving them a chance to sort of pitch their solutions and and even on the, the buy side, be able to find the right vendors for that stuff. So obviously, like a conference room or an event is a really good place to do that. And now all that's gone. So now we have to figure out how to replicate that stuff uh, digitally or virtually, which is, I mean, I, I think everyone's been struggling with this to some extent for the last year and a half, two years. So that was obviously a huge challenge for us. So, you know, that's been, that was a big focus for us. Then even like some of these other parts of the business that you don't necessarily you know equate to big conferences like our awards for example we have a, we have a huge awards business uh, th- thirteen awards programs we're going to run this year and those generally have a gala associated with them where you announce the winners um, you get those sponsored it's a it's a big party it's yeah. a lot of fun so those went away we had to figure out how to how to give our these winners the basically the same amount of recognition just removing this event. 
our subscription product. There was you know events and panels and stuff built into that. Those are now gone all of a sudden. So yeah, like like I said, events are sort of like core to the DNA of Digiday. And so now all of a sudden, like the live event aspect is sort of taken out of it. And we have to kind of do our best to mimic all those things virtually. So I think that was obviously like, that's the the obvious, the big way that it changed. I think the other thing too is like I alluded to before, Digiday started as an event 12 or 13 years ago, whatever, uh, 14 years ago. And like, since then, Events have been a huge part of our business. We were over-indexed on events for a long time, and we've made a lot of a lot of good progress, sort of evening out or diversifying our business. And I think the pandemic just accelerated that even more. Um, yeah. So, like, all right, we we're gonna have the best year this year that we've ever had in terms of display. And I, just, I mean, to be honest, like, like our sellers do a great job selling it and stuff, but a lot of it's just because the pandemic is just you know forcing head dollars into it also so yeah at the same time maybe it's that moment of pause to your point that allows you to be able to just pause which where again obviously there's a financial aspect of that but allows you to be able to pause look at the other areas of your business in some ways that when the wheel is spinning and the money is coming in you you know it's your it's the painter who's got the worst painted house because he's always out you know he or she are always out painting somebody else's place and so i feel like sometimes especially to a lot of the cmos and the the vps of marketing that i've had a chance to talk to really over the last couple of years any that have been in the event space this has been that chance for them to kind of rethink that business to some extent or look at something that they've been trying to think of. What do we do you know, with this thing we've been thinking of over the last couple of years? Give them a chance to maybe add those pieces in or spend some quality time thinking about that, which in some ways may allow them going back kind of full circle and putting a button on it to think almost like social media does to some extent. If you're just doing the same thing kind of over and over and over and over and over again, it may get a little kind of uh, soft. And so here was maybe a chance to be able to kind of rethink that to some extent. As you've rethought that business and as the business is now starting to kind of come back, do you feel like it's made you stronger? Are there some areas that you that have surprised you? Um, is it that selling of, you know, of your internal uh, digital pieces that has been a little bit of a surprise and now will just allow you guys to be even stronger as you kind of come out of this uh, this moment and back into live events? Yeah, I think the one thing that's been kind of surprising to me and definitely in a good way is the staying power of some of our digital products. I think like one in particular is some of these virtual kind of like workshops and roundtables that we've done. Mm-hmm. Obviously, going back the last year and a half, everyone is doing virtual events. People are getting sick of them. Like, I don't blame them. The last thing I want to do is spend like more time on Zoom calls throughout the day. So we definitely saw a little bit of a, a waning of demand in like big virtual conferences and virtual summits and stuff like that, which, like I said, is understandable. One thing that we've seen pretty consistently we've seen pretty consistent demand for is some of these more kind of intimate roundtables that we've done throughout the year. So, I mean, people, whether you're in a conference room or it's over Zoom, people want to connect with like-minded people who are, you know, trying to figure out the same problems that they are. I think the short answer is we've seen uh, some real staying power with some of those virtual products, which is a pleasant surprise. You know, people found out that didn't necessarily need a conference room to connect with 10 other people who are trying to solve the same publishing problems that they are. So I think that's been a great surprise for us. I think the other one is, yeah, just going back to some of the advertising and the digital stuff. When you think about, all right, you know, we take away, take away our events. And if you're a seller, you're trying to hit your, uh, your quota for the year. And now there's not 
these huge sponsorship opportunities for for conferences throughout the year, you're going to figure out something else to to sell your clients. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, And so I think it really made our sellers, it forced our sellers and everyone else on our business side to really, you know, understand Mm -hmm. our, some of our advertising products and, you know, our award sponsorships and our lead gen products and these custom content opportunities we had really forced them to understand the value and like learn how to sell those things that much more. So, you know, people talk about the different things that the uh, the pandemic accelerated. I think that was definitely one for us. For you, you're in the space, you're in this digital space, you're in kind of this always emerging, always changing space. What do you wish you knew more about? You're in this. What What's that thing that, you know, that was the head scratcher? Again, as we, you know, we talked about programmatic, which for both of us to some extent, five or six years ago, hell, I wish I had bought stock when Trade Desk offered it to me. I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast. But uh, at the same time, what's that next thing for you? Where are you trying to spend your time going, oh, I wish I knew more about this in the space? I would say that an understanding of journalism is really important for someone on the on the business side and understanding how reporters sort of cover their beats and, and stuff like that. You know, I'm sure on, a, on like some podcast or some LinkedIn post or something somewhere, someone is waxing poetically about how media is a, a people business and it's about getting all these different people to work together, which is, which is true for sure. And I think, you know, empathy is a big part of that. So like historically at media companies, you've had this church and state thing where you had the business side and the content side, and there's this line drawn in the middle and those, those two sides of the business are kept separate. And, you know, as I said, that's a little bit different now. Most modern media companies are trying to have, you know, more of a um, approach. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, like I said, I think, you know, empathy is a big part of that and really understanding and not only, you know, in working with, you know, some of these other functional areas, but if I'm trying to sell subscriptions, I really need to understand the product the best that I can. I would say that's one thing I wish, and I don't know if I necessarily have any regrets, like just, that was just my, my career trajectory didn't you know necessarily have a huge journalism component to it for a while, that's but I think that's one thing that I wish I had a little bit more. I was going to say it's better than being an accountant. Oh, anything, anything, yeah, anything, <laughs> anything credits, yeah. <laughs> but you're in a space where you can at least learn that. Meaning, not that you know that you need to be out there writing you know articles for DigiDay yourself specifically, but understanding how that world does become blended. How do I how do I provide great content to my editors and my editorial people out there at the same time making sure that we're building great relationships with those clients that want to do business with the people that are reading and and visiting, you know, our events. You know, it is it is a much more blended world now than it, you know, than it was back in the day and that doesn't have to be a bad thing. In fact, it's often a good thing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's that uh there's that cliche that's been overused a trillion times the last few years about how content is king or whatever. And I mean, it's true. Like you can't, you can't have a great media business without great content. So like, that's, that's gotta be number one. The way media businesses are set up now, you have sort of these other functional areas I can sort of plug into that and, and help with that a little bit more like analytics and feedback on what sort of like content and topics are driving, are driving subscriptions and are, you know, really popular with advertisers and stuff like that. So, well, listen, if you don't know DigiDay, you, you should. And if you are starting to get back out in the event space and you're a brand that's in the business to business space, or you're working with obviously those in the industry and you're trying to figure out, you know, where can I go if it's not ad age, if it's not ad week, or even if it is some of those, 
what are those areas or those places or what's that great brand that I can kind of involve myself with? Digiday is absolutely, from my perspective, it's one of the ones that you need to, to check out. I've been to, I think, a couple of their events in the past. I just missed that one in Miami, which I'll make sure that I'll uh, have to get a chance to go to uh, next year. And Mike, listen, we appreciate you spending some time talking to us a bit about your journey and certainly your path along the way there at Digiday. So thank you very much for joining us on this episode of The CMO Suite. Yeah, Sean, thanks for having me. Thanks for hanging out in the CMO suite. The podcast for marketers who want to be in the know. Presented by Connectivity Holdings. You're a C-level manager. You shouldn't have to know the difference between behavioral or contextual targeting. But your agency should. UConnect provides brands and biddable teams direct access to platforms like the Trade Desk, Google, Amazon, Facebook, OTT, and more. Their U.S.-based traders can train your in-house team or provide complete transparency with no minimums and CPM-based service pricing for true transparency, something Mighty Hive, The Trade Desk, and Centro simply don't offer. Tired of being the smartest one in the room? Reach out to UConnex today for a free demo. UConnex, the world's leader in true, transparent, biddable media. Season 6 of the CMO Suite is presented by Bid for Media. Bid for Media is the leader in providing biddable media solutions across all forms of media, including traditional, digital, social, experiential, and more. It's like eBay for media. Choices from radio and TV advertising to OTT, trade desk, display advertising, influencer marketing, and more. No sign-up fees, no boring training, no bullshit. Visit them at bidformedia.com. And Winmo. Winmo is one of the leading sales prospecting tools that delivers the information you need to identify opportunities and close more deals with advertisers and agencies. Search brands, agencies, or contacts and leverage Winmo's smart filters to pare down thousands of prospects based on annual revenue, job title, locations, mobile occurrence, planning periods, and more. Visit them today at winmo.com. And finally, No Kid Hungry. With season six, we'll be completing our 100th episode of the CMO Suite, and we're proud to announce we'll be compiling highlights of our previous guests for a book called CMO Suites, Recipes for Success with proceeds to benefit the No Kid Hungry organization. Help feed hungry kids by donating today at nokidhungry.org.